Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Bex. And I'm Laura. And we're here to talk openly and honestly about miscarriage, stillbirth and all pregnancy loss. We aim to smash the taboo surrounding these subjects. And rebuild the topic in a way to support and educate women. Rather than isolate and shame them. Welcome to the worst girl gang ever. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Worst Girl Gang Ever. We are joined today by Emma Whitney, who is also known on Instagram as Emma the Embryologist. That's correct, isn't it? Yes. Good. Yes, that's, it is. That's a good start. Whew. And Emma has not only got a really good insight into the um like the healthcare professional point of view but she's also been on her own personal journey as well the journey journey Journey. do you hate that word as much as we do emma yeah a little bit but um i don't know i don't know what other word you're meant to use no i know we need to come up with a new word (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, it's got to be one we changed it to shit show i like that i like that better yeah it definitely does feel like a shit show when you're in it it's more well, like, oh, that gritty, that, yeah. you know, the real stuff. We're all about the real stuff. And yeah, I like that. It's not a journey. Mm. It is a shit show. Yeah. It is a shit show. So, Emma, what came first, your job or the shit show? Oh, the job. The job definitely came first. Um, okay. Tell us I a began... bit about that then, how you came to becoming an embryologist. I'm one of those really weird individuals that knew wanted to, what I wanted to do when I was 15. Um my mum's a midwife, my sister's a midwife, and okay. I was surrounded by reproductive bits and bobs and ended up doing some work experience in a fertility clinic back when I was 15, 16. Wow. Many, many, many years ago. I'm not going to tell you how many. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually did my degrees based on going into embryology. I went to London to do my master's degree with all intents and purposes of going back to Dorset and living there um, and got offered a job at Bart's Hospital, which you don't turn down. So no. that was 20 years ago. So okay. I've been an embryologist since I was 22. So I have given my age away. But yeah, so 20 years ago. Oh, my so, math is terrible, so I can't even put that out. <laughs> no. well, but that, that's incredible that you did work experience mm. in a clinic because that's what we were talking about. We, we try and talk about like the education around it and stuff. But for you, that education must have been there from the word go. I think it came from mum, really. My mum left school when she was 15, like you did back in the 80s, mm. um, in the 70s, I suppose. She left school and never got any like GCSEs. And when I was about 12, she said, sod this. Um, I don't want to do this anymore. I think um, things weren't great, uh, you know, single. Well, she wasn't single, but my dad wasn't around very much, not for any intent or purposes. He's a very lovely man. Um, but... He- I suppose she then just kicked ass and went back to school, got herself a degree, became a oh, midwife good for and her. I was surrounded by it. So to me, it was almost like a, wow, this is bonkers fascinating. And it went from there. Mm. So when it came to you going through these 
this shit show yourself mm-hmm. you weren't naive to it no and that's that actually I think shocked me the most because I'd spent the last so I was let's let's run through it very briefly not that you can with a shit show because it's quite a long <laughs> shit show um I was I was well into my job I was married I was 31 and 32 something like that um and I got pregnant very quickly and had my little girl Betsy which in its own own world presented some really interesting challenges working in a fertility clinic and being pregnant because nobody wants to see you nobody wants to see your bump um and actually at the time I I felt like I needed to hide away I was quite ashamed by that pregnancy that had been so easy to achieve and I'm absolutely blessed I've got uh, she's nine years old now and she's she's the wonder of the world um but when we decided we wanted a second child she was about two two and a half I got pregnant again straight away and had a chemical pregnancy which I actually with that let's let's be there we're going to be really honest here I actually had that in the toilet at work and then went back to work and collected 10 patients eggs that day so because you don't you don't think it's okay to just to talk about it so I was like oh do you know what you know I knew this stuff happened I I I work with this day in day out I get it um got pregnant again sorry Emma you knew what a chemical pregnancy was then didn't you yeah 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 most people most people didn't haven't got a clue no so I knew I knew exactly what was happening as well um and I suppose in a way I don't know I suppose in my my career I'd seen so much awfulness with pregnancy loss um Mm. and things not working out that for me a chemical pregnancy I'd almost negated it as being a real thing because were you able to put like a logical head on like a science head like the the facts and not not really let yourself be too invested yeah that but also I just got pregnant again straight away what was I worrying about you know, I was working in a fertility clinic where I was dealing with patients that hadn't hadn't managed to conceive for years on end. So for me, I suppose my perception was quite warped. I was a bit like, oh, what am I? You know, I've got nothing to complain about here. I, work. I hear you, Emma, because the, the chemical pregnancies that I've had have got worse the longer it's been since the last pregnancy. Like the I think a, a chemical when you're really desperate for a baby and you have a chemical pregnancy, it hits you really hard. Mm. Um, but I've had a couple of chemical pregnancies where they were straight after, mm-hmm. and um, and I j- just thought like you did. Oh well, at least it's all working again. Yeah, and that was that was where my head was at. Which look I look back now, and that was sort of seven years ago, and I think God, that was quite warped really to just cope with it that way and just carry on doing my job. And I went home, I had a little cry, and picked up and got myself on with it and I got pregnant again straight away and this time it seemed to be absolutely fine 12 weeks fine 20 weeks went in skipping and dancing came out having been told my baby had a heart defect um a heart defect that they wouldn't clarify but I needed to see someone else and again this is where the job didn't help because I knew straight away how serious this was I knew that that sonographer didn't know how to look me in the eye. I actually felt really sorry for her. And I had to wait the most hideous eight days with a few consultant appointments to find out that actually that heart defect was incompatible with life. Um, and as all TFMR mummies out there will know, the choice you make at that point is not the choice you want to make. It's the choice you make out of love. Not and it's a choice. choice I, it. It's not a choice. I didn't have a choice. I had to choose when my baby died. 
And I had to choose that based on what was best for everyone but me and my husband. But I definitely wanted it to be right for Betsy because I didn't want Mm -hmm. her to be surrounded by a sibling that would have died either at birth or within the first year. Um, And I wanted to be able to control that grief for her. It felt like the only control I had. So the decision was taken out of love and pure love for um, the little girl we lost, who was called Dorothy. Um, And at 23 weeks, we terminated the pregnancy. So I think that blew me because I got told, and I don't know whether this helped. I I still to this day don't think it helped. Someone told me that the chance of it happening was three and a half a million. Wow. And I sat there and went, why me after everything? And I know you can't put this into context because everyone, why anyone? But seriously, I've just spent my entire years helping people have children. Mm. What, you know, and it felt really, like everyone feels, it felt really cruel. Um, It is cruel. When you think of the statistics, as you just explained, yeah, like the chances of it happening to you in your profession, you Mm -hmm. who given your working you know years your your education everything to helping women conceive it just feels like that's so unfair oh it was just it was a shit show um but what followed actually and what's I now um so like thankful for you guys because that you weren't around when this happened to me this was seven years ago and I remember reaching out and not finding anyone that was willing to talk or share or be part of that community and what's happened over we'll probably get to that later is where I am now in sort of what I think as well very much like you do a raising pregnancy loss you know raising the pregnancy loss awareness um what followed for me actually was no one had a clue what to do with me and I worked in a fertility clinic mm. and that is something that I'm only just getting my head around seven years later that even in a fertility clinic, no one knew how to manage it. So my shit show continued about six weeks later when I decided that was the right time to go back to work. I I was very wrong. Um, I know that now, but I needed to do something. I needed to go back to work. Wow. And the first phone call I took was from a woman who had just lost her baby to sepsis at five weeks old. And I sat on that phone call for 45 minutes and supported her and went through everything with her on the phone and I got off and threw up in the bin. Um, And that in itself made me realise, and I look back on that now and realise that was not okay. (laughs) That was not, that was not an okay story to be telling. Um, But there is no, there is no guidebook on this. There is no one to tell you how you should look after your employees, how you should look after yourself, how you should feel, what you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, There's no SOP. By the way, there is now. There is. (laughs) (laughs) There is now. And I'm really pleased that you've done that. Yeah. So um, after that, my shit show continued, believe it or not. So for another year, I went through another three losses, um, one of which that resulted in surgery because I had retained placenta just to give me another kick in the vagina. Um, And yeah, so but thankfully, we are now blessed with a little boy called Fred, who is four. Um, and arrived almost two years to the day after we lost Dorothy. So, oh wow! Funny enough, I feel like the luckiest person alive, which sounds really <laughs> strange saying that after I just told you my story. But um, I am. I mean, I've got you know, I've got two lovely children, and I'm I'm very blessed. But it's taken me seven years to get my head around the grief and the bereavement and all the. I love it. The shit show. 
um, mm. to now be in a place where I really think this is really important from my almost quite privileged position that we start talking a bit more about why this happens and how we do it and actually what we should be doing to help each other and you know in workplace mm. and everywhere we say we often say that you can't from an emotional point of view you can't understand this this yeah. experience but from an educational point of view we can definitely teach others how to understand the process of support and what it should look like because uh, yeah. that's actually quite easy isn't it to um to arm yourself with with the knowledge of what to say and what is perhaps invalidating yeah. oh yeah yeah the yeah. process and enough if enough people know that then actually it can reframe re turn around the world what the world looks like for so many people going through this yeah. and it's really interesting what you say about so d- when you were um pregnant when you were, had your successful pregnancy and you said that you you felt ashamed because of the your work environment do you feel like that um sort of that had a really negative effect on your enjoyment of the pregnancy so Fred's pregnancy was difficult anyway, because when we had Dorothy, they didn't really know what had caused the heart defect. They never really found out. It's certain, they don't think it was genetic. It was just one of those really crappy congenital defects. So, um, but because of that, I had to be under consultant-led care. So I had to have a lot more scans and I had to have his heart checked about three times, which was obviously meant as as everyone who's lost any baby holds their breath throughout that whole pregnancy until mm. you've got that baby in your arms. So. Um, that felt like I, and I was quite big quite quickly. I'm quite a tiny person and he was 10 pound too. So I was actually quite, I was showing very early and scrubs or no scrubs, I couldn't hide it. Mm. Um, So I felt almost, I went the other way. I was actually a bit pissed off. I was pissed off that I was being judged in a fertility clinic for being pregnant. I felt like I wanted a badge on that said, you don't know what I've been through. Yeah, Yeah, I guess that pregnancy must have been very different to your first pregnancy because you hadn't gone through any loss no before you had Betsy um, and that's yeah that's what I meant with with Betsy when you were pregnant with Betsy and you said that you felt you had to hide away from yeah. Your pregnancy. yeah did you did you enjoy the pregnancy despite that or was it I, I did I didn't enjoy being at work because I didn't want anyone to hurt I was so much about the naivety of it not having you know me having this lovely pregnancy that I just didn't want to hurt any of my patients I was quite close to a lot of them um but yeah, so I, I did enjoy Betsy's pregnancy. I was, like I said, I, I didn't know any different and I was very lucky, but work got hard. Work did get hard. I did leave work at 34 weeks with her because it was just, it was actually quite emotionally challenging being in that environment with so much grief and mm. there's the looks and look, no one's judging anyone for those looks. That's that's part and parcel of a fertility clinic. But um, with Fred's pregnancy, it felt like I wanted to scream from the rooftops. This is... I get it. I deserve this. I deserve this. Don't judge me. I deserve it. Don't judge me. Yeah. I've earned this. Um, Yeah. Um, What about the in-between bit? Yeah. Well, the in-between bit was just horrific. And you were then surrounded by people who were having successful pregnancies. Mm -hmm. That must have been really difficult too. So especially when I had the really hideous, I had about 10 week miscarriage that needed the surgery that went on for months and months. And it is just like, you know, you live your life in like one week or two week blocks. It's Mm. just exhausting. Limbo. It's limbo, isn't it? I remember the, the period between... Lose find out finding out that my baby had died and it all being physically over and you mm. kind of given the green light to either you know try again or mm. you're waiting for your period in that that time frame you just don't know what to do with yourself and it you feel like well I certainly felt like emotionally I couldn't even 
go there. I couldn't even start to examine what was going on in my head because physically I was still pregnant mm-hmm. and I, there was nothing I could do about it. I was, mm-hmm. I was there, just this sort of walking vessel of a dead baby. And I just felt like, yeah. I was, oh, it was just the most traumatic experience. Yeah. Because you're completely out of your control, as you say. You are. It's funny you say that because I actually don't remember that year very much. Mm, And that that actually makes me sad as well, because at the end of the day, I had a three year old at home who was growing and developing and who got me out of bed every morning, to be honest. I mean, let's Mm, face it, having a living child definitely saved me somewhat from what could have been a drowning situation, like I imagine it is for many people. Um, But I, I don't remember that year very much. I remember going through the motions I definitely made a lot of people pregnant which I suppose I didn't think about at the time <laughs> that sounds quite funny it's really weird isn't it I definitely um, made a lot of people, a lot of people pregnant. pregnant I did <laughs> um and but I don't remember I, it, I I don't remember much of it I remember it just being awful I remember it just being I call it the dark year hmm. yeah I'm I'm not surprised in that what we touched on what you touched on a moment ago about saying you know, you were aware that you were still a mum and you feel sad. You feel that almost that grief for the time that you missed out with Betsy. Yeah. Just, it, I, I was talking to someone about that in our course during one of our um, Zooms last week because she, you sort of feel like you have this imposter syndrome if you've got kids already. Like, I am yeah. not worthy of being here in this community of women because I have children. And it's this really difficult, you know, I'm I'm in that boat. That's that's me. I have children. And and to start with, I felt like, oh God, some of these ladies, some of these poor, poor women don't have that that lifeboat of, of a, a a living child. But in the same way, it is quite a difficult thing to manage when you go through that because you are so aware that you have this child, you have a child already, and you feel the guilt of like, is this child not enough? Why am I so yeah. desperately sad about this child, this baby that has died when Surely I can just put all of my love into yeah. my living child. And why should, why am I still feeling that grief? And, and then you have the, I'm God, I'm not present. I'm not present. I'm so deep in my own grief that I don't really care what my child is doing right now yeah. because I need to look after myself. And it's such a difficult, they, they can't be expect, uh, compared these two experiences. I don't think because they are not the same. They, no. you, mm-hmm. they are completely incomparable because there's such different things that you have to kind of, justify and level out and cope and strategize and mm. all that is that a word strategize it mm. is yeah oh, okay, cool. <laughs> um, all of this stuff that you have to manage and it's so different whether you have uh, children or not and yeah. yeah I definitely I I will hand on heart say I mean I hope this will help someone but I didn't like my child for quite a few months not I didn't love her I did love her but I couldn't I couldn't rationalize it all I couldn't yeah, I couldn't stop this grief making me feel just awful, and it was yeah. like I I don't know there was something it it was dark it was yeah it was not nice and especially then like you said being surrounded by the job I do it was it was really tricky. Mm. That's it's, it does get it gets so dark, doesn't mm. it? And and I think that would be really helpful because there is something there are some feelings like what you've just explained that are so you know shaming and you feel so ashamed by them that you don't share them and so many women will be feeling that sort of similar mm. you know just just that that all-consuming pain that you can't mm. 
can't manage it you can't get yeah. your head around it and you have to just kind of sit with it until it changes and morphs and changes shape and context and and intensity and then and then you can start to be able to deal with it mm. but I think it, I believe it really is just about just about sort of clinging on and waiting and, and hope mm. and 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 reading the experience of others and and sharing that grief. Yeah, I think what you do, what you guys do, is so important because I I remember just scouring the internet looking for mm. someone to tell me that the way I was feeling was okay, mm. um, and it just wasn't there back then. You know, I mean, like seven years ago now. But it, um, what's happened since then has been has been phenomenal. So it's just amazing. Mm. Emma, I wanted to ask you about. Um, you mentioned that you went back to work very quickly after you lost Dorothy mm. um, and you were 23 weeks. Yeah. So had you have been 24 weeks, you would, I would have been entitled to statutory maternity. But yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's something that needs to be reviewed and changed? Oh God. So um, I'm at the moment, I'm in the process of um, doing some campaigning through the Eve well, going into companies to try and under- make companies understand what their employees need when it comes to more so fertility treatments. If someone walks into your office and says, I need fertility treatment, this is how it looks. This is what time off they need. This is what support they need. But also to try and give them some concept of what pregnancy loss is, how it looks, how common, the fact that you're probably sat next to someone that's been through it, or there's a colleague in your office. You know, These are people that you spend 40 or 50 hours a week with. They, you spend more time with them than your family. So we're at the moment trying to get into companies to say, this is how the journey, again, that word comes back time and time again. I don't think I, you can you use know, shit show with companies. Can't you probably shit best show. off losing journey <laughs> not, still. Not very cool. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I was trying to explain to a company I was talking to the other day that, you know, if someone loses a baby after 24 weeks, you have to give them statutory maternity leave if that's what they choose to do. But if they don't, you know, if it's before, if it's 23 weeks and six days, they're legally entitled to nothing. And actually the shock that came from companies when you talked, mm-hmm. like no one even knew that. Um, I, I actually was signed off sick. So I took mine as, as sick leave and I was in a way fortunate that I'd been with the company long enough that I had that, you know, that right. But, oh my God, it needs reviewing. I mm. let's, be, let's go there. I was still leaking milk when I went back to work six oh. weeks later. So... Should I've been there? Probably not. Um, I probably, yeah. I mean, there's lots of things you can look back on. And say, should I've done that? Well, should I? Done I mean, that? it's but, not yeah. even just the physical aspects, is it? It's the yeah. me- the mental health as well mm. and your emotional well being, particularly if you're working in a job where you are surrounded mm. by triggers, constant triggers. Yeah, yeah it, and I think that's part of the the ambition for me now is trying to raise this level of awareness for all types of you know reproductive choice pregnancy loss everything just trying to put it into people's mind that this is you know one in six couples will struggle with fertility Mm. and one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage so why are we not talking about this a bit Mm. more why is there not this level of support and why do managers and people in companies not actually know what to do when someone is going through any of these scenarios it's it's we've got to get better yeah, yeah, we have, we have, we've got it like this nail on head, Emma. We've got to get better because if this was anything else, like if if you went for an operation and there was only 20, you know, there was 25% chance that it wouldn't work, you'd be like, okay, that's quite, you know, that it's is bit a, sh- it's a bit shit, isn't it? <laughs> you, you would, great odds. Like you would consider like whether the operation was worth it. Not that I'm saying, you know, you consider whether a pregnancy is worth yeah, it. Yeah, totally, but you're you know, absolutely right. That, 
it's that massive, massive thing that everyone is going to have to make you aware of that because it is a massive statistic. But no one makes you aware. When you go to your booking in appointment, when you phone the doctor, no one has ever said to me, okay, um, obviously this isn't very nice to talk about, but there is a chance that you could miscarry. Um, blah, 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 blah. Do you have support? Have you told anyone about your pregnancy? We would recommend you tell people so that there is support there if you need it. Like, why the fuck doesn't that happen? Mm. Yeah. It's a conversation I have quite a lot now, actually, when people are definitely when they're coming to fertility a bit later because it's a real it's a real thing it's you know over 42 it's it's 50 50 you have like these check boxes saying oh have I told them about folic acid (laughs) why not have I told them about how shit this is if it ends early yeah have I asked them about whether they have the uh, you know adequate support have I asked them what support they have at home Mm. oh it just it just it's shit. I feel you. Mm. It is just shit indeed. Emma, why don't you tell us a bit more about what an embryologist does? Because there'll be loads of people listening to this who are thinking about or have had or are having fertility treatment. And it would be quite interesting to hear. Okay, so an embryologist does um, all the lab work, basically, in the laboratory. So when you're having any sort of fertility treatment, whether that be fertility preservation um, for cancer or for social reasons, such as egg freezing, or if you are undergoing an IVF process to try and conceive a pregnancy, or if you are undergoing an IVF treatment to genetically test your embryos, either for what we call anomalies or aneuploidies which are the most common reason that people miscarry um chromosomal genetic incompetence um or uh, maybe a lot of people in your in your um group would have had terminations for medical reasons for genetic disease so you can actually go through an ivf cycle and test your embryos against the genetics to make sure they are what we call compatible with ongoing pregnancy and life so an embryologist is the person in the lab that basically takes the sperm from the donor or the partner um, takes the eggs from the woman, puts them together. Uh, with with lot, there's different ways of doing that. Um, one's called IVF, one's called ICSI. I won't go into mm-hmm. it too much. We put them in the incubator. We flick a bit of Barry White on. No, no, we don't. Um, <laughs> we we put them in the incubator, and literally, then the rest of it is in the hands of the embryo. So we've obviously got a lot of control over where and how they're made. Um, we pick. It, it sounds a bit like godlike, but we pick the sperm. Mm-hmm. We put it into the eggs, we nurture them, we look after them, we can grade them, we can monitor them throughout those days. And we do that for about five or six or seven days where they're growing in the laboratory. We don't interfere with them too much in those days. Ultimately, genetics has a lot to play with whether or not an embryo will or won't grow. I think the misconception that would probably help your listeners is that when you are trying to conceive naturally, I think people think that the fertilization bit isn't happening. Um, It probably is because that's actually the easy bit. They, sperm and eggs actually communicate quite well mm. but if the information in that embryo isn't correct it will not go to that end point of embryo development and it won't make you pregnant so you will have a negative test and you will have your period um, or a chemical pregnancy may be an early implantation that then fails and then obviously a miscarriage is a bit later than that and then we go on down the down the road of pregnancy so for an embryologist, what we're always trying to do is ascertain which is the strongest embryos or embryo to transfer back to the woman either immediately or at a later date. Mm. 
Um, and that is a lot of the time now post-genetic testing. So to see if the embryo is actually compatible with life, whether that is because they carry a genetic disease or whether they are just a bit um, older in age, as that's that correlates with genetic miscarriages. Um, so we're constantly trying to find those embryos that have the quickest, most optimal outcome for women. So I deal with a lot of women that have either had termination for medical reasons for genetic disease, such as cystic fibrosis is one that everyone knows about, or if they've had a termination for Down syndrome, which is to do with what we call anomalies or aneuploides. Um, a lot of the women I deal with have had multiple miscarriages because that's why they're in front of me. And that's what we're trying to help them do. So an embryologist plays quite a big role in, in that process. Um, ultimately, once their eggs and sperm are removed, we are we are the givers of life, so to speak. And we are the ones that have to make quite crucial decisions. And it's all about fine skill and handling. Um, yeah. And then a lot of the time we do a lot of freezing. So we freeze them down and it might be because, you know, the patients want to wait or they are trying to like I said, preserve their fertility. Um, there's lots of reasons, but yeah, ultimately that that's us. God, it's so interesting. Do you have much contact with the couples themselves? I do or now. Is it just their egg and sperm? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I do now because actually I'm a massive advocate for, and Emma the embryologist came about because I realised that when I was going through my own shit show, what got me was that, my anxiety was caused about a lack of knowledge. It was, yeah. a, it was caused about not knowing what, excuse my French, the fuck was going to happen next mm. because there, until you guys came around, there wasn't a, a, a rule book. There isn't an SOP. There isn't a, you know, at work, everything for me is very science. It's SOPs, it's structure. I have absolute, I know exactly what to, I've got to do every minute of every day to uh, make sure that this, yep. Yeah, What's an SOP? Sorry. Sorry, standard operating procedure. Okay, gotcha. Sorry, that's such a science word without me even realising I'm saying it. That's okay. You I just speak. want to clarify. I was trying so, to look intelligent and like, mm, yeah, okay. And then I was thinking, no, no, oh, you should I absolutely stop me. I just go off on my science tangents. Um, so, yeah, so and for me, every part of my day is mapped out by an SOP. And when all this happened, I was like, well, hold on a minute where's the fucking SOP for this? You know, yeah. how do you cope, how do you cope with this? Um, yeah. And I realized that a lot of what I was feeling was just the, the element of unknown and no one was sat there telling me what to expect. And I had a doctor that walked in a room and told me that these are your decisions to make your baby's going to die. And, mm. and she was lovely. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't feel very like I was, I was left making a decision without really I think I was dealt differently maybe because I am medical, but I felt like I, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how we cope. My husband still doesn't know how to deal with this. You know, it goes on and on. Mm. Um, and I think with embryology, I realized that I used to work in a very, very big clinic and we didn't have time to see patients. And these poor patients were handing over what we call their gametes. So your gametes are your eggs and your sperm behind this closed lab door to a face that they had never seen. And then suddenly five days later, we pop through a McDonald's hatch and go, here's your embryo. Yeah. And that must be. The or most, you don't have any embryos. Or you don't have any embryos and worse, someone picks yeah. up the phone and tells you that. Yeah. And I thought without, like you said earlier, um, it was about no one tells you that miscarriage is this common. Well, shouldn't we be telling our patients that actually not having any embryos at the end of this journey can actually happen? Because if you're prepared for that, then all of this seems a little bit more, I'm not saying better, but copable. Yeah. So Emily Embryologist came about because I 
didn't want to be, I didn't want anyone going through IVF treatment, especially the embryology side of it, without understanding what on earth they were doing. So I'm quite lucky now. I'm actually very, very patient facing. I've made it, we've made it our sole mission at the Eve Well to, to make sure that every patient gets to speak to us because you are about to hand over your gametes to us. So, and a lot of money. And a lot of money. And you yeah. should be able to put a face to those people and know that actually we're in this with you. 100%. This isn't just a, you don't go into this for just being a job. Yeah. Um because it's incredibly stressful, but it, it we are there with you and I you know you need people to feel that. So I'm all about like you guys education. Education, education. Yeah. The more Again, you can tell like, people. It's a, it's about that choice, isn't it? Because I imagine some people not necessarily bothered about the science, not necessarily kind of you know gets frightened by all of yep. the, all of the detail. But that's fine too. It's just about recognizing that within this, within the the realms of sort of fertility, there are there is room for more than one opinion. There is room for more than one experience, and and no one's kind of what they want. Yeah, is is invalid or, or right or wrong. It's just that there should be an option for everyone to have their journey the way they want it to be isn't it yeah absolutely and if they don't want to speak to us that's fine but there are certain elements that we need we need to get across because in fertility especially you have to give informed consent um and if you can't give the information you can't give the consent so there are elements where we can't just jump through them but mm. i totally understand what you're saying I, I i don't we don't ever force information on anyone but it's really important that they know the door is is not shut it is open yeah. And we are very, very available to talk to. And I think that should be the way with everything we deal about, you know, mm. anything medical. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned that your husband still struggles to get his head around it. Mm. Is that something that, how difficult was that in, in the early days? Communication is is so, so important when it comes yeah. to sort of dealing with grief together, but also we need time to, to deal with it apart how how was your relationship affected oh god oh that's the dark days it, I mean we we've been together a really long time mm-hmm. um and I am literally the luckiest person alive with him he is possibly the one most wonderful man on the planet what's his name um, Simon go good on Simon good on Simon um <laughs> I mean look he watched me go through something pretty awful my sister was there as well when we lost Dorothy and she kept us together but ultimately, he spent probably two years just propping me up, having sex with me when I told him to because I wanted to get pregnant again. Wow. Um, well done, Simon, because lots of lots of them don't. I used to get really pissed off if he wouldn't. <laughs> because yeah. like that's all you think about, isn't it? It's like it was like that yeah. whole that whole feeling of like we're in the fertile window and then they do something to really, really annoy you. <laughs> mm-hmm. but you cannot do anything. You can't raise it because that means sex is off the table but you can afterwards speak (laughs) Um, and then it's yeah it's just such a weird kind of it's horrible it's horrible and actually that was the one point where I think I I finally can say when I I talk to my fertility patients now I can actually turn around and say god I get it it is it is awful trying for a baby for that long is Mm. awful it does things to your everything that you used to find quite exciting and enjoyable and you know it doesn't ever get back to normal it, you know I mean, everything, everything sex friendships everything yeah social life yeah. work the whole lot life just it's, becomes really fucking shit all it round. does really bad but he 
So yeah, he spent two years literally propping me up, like really. I've, I can't imagine what he had to watch me go through. I, like I said, I don't remember a lot of it. And I think it's because I was just in this grief ridden haze. Mm. Um, and about two years later, he had a breakdown. He had oh. a complete breakdown because he'd never actually gone through the process of grieving mm. for his lost child. And at the time I was pregnant with Fred, just about to give birth. Um, and I found him on the bathroom floor crying oh. and he couldn't get up. And I think it was because the idea of having to watch me go through that again mm. to do all this and then realise that actually he'd spent two years like propping me up, that actually he was just absolutely exhausted. So mm. um, there's been a lot of counselling. There's been a lot of help. There are some really good bereavement counsellors out there. Um, but ultimately what I think is missing massively is men don't bloody talk. <laughs> they, they don't, don't do talk they? to each other. They don't talk to anyone until they're in a heap on the floor in the bathroom. And you just, I don't know what we do about that. I don't well, know. What we... Well, you say you don't know what we do. We are, we have something in the pipeline, don't we? Yes, we do. Amazing. We do. It's one of these things that we text each other and go, oh my God, we, we have to do this, mate. We have to do it. And we're like, yeah, I know. Do you know, we got a message from someone after the book launch. Someone said, I dread to think what you two are going to get up to next. We do. Just go, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because it's um, I'm I'm involved in the um, there's Test Him Fertility as well, which is a, a like a forum for men starting to talk about men's fertility. And there's some really okay. good individuals out there about um, there's a guy out there called uh, Sean who's knackered knackers. Yeah, we've um, had him on the podcast. Oh, he's amazing. He's mm. such a nice guy. But about making men talk, and mm. actually, this that is I'm hoping that obviously with you guys doing what you're doing as well will help with the movement of. Because they just don't talk. They well, just if you didn't. think about it from a woman's point of view, for, from my point of view personally, I felt like a shit woman. I felt like I wasn't a, a proper woman because I couldn't do what I was what I was meant to do. Mm. But luckily, women are talkers and we're able to connect with each other and make things seem a little bit less overwhelming. So men must just feel less less of a man when yeah. their bits aren't doing what they're meant to do. But they don't have that outlet. And mm. it's not about, we can't take any of this away. It'll always be here. People will always have fertility struggles, mm. but we can make it easier for people to navigate them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And women, we are, we're smashing it. Not just us, like, you know, like as a community, it's amazing. Like you say, seven years ago, there was fuck all out there. It was, it was really, yeah, really it lost. It's good to see the stuff for men starting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's definitely a movement and it's, it, yeah. it's really important. So but he's good now. He's good. It's but yeah, with that, I think I've I I know uh, a really good friend of mine who's male went through a lot of fertility stuff, and it has like he's changed, and he won't go and get kind of help from anywhere. And I just think, and he's been successful now, and he has a child. But at the same time, I just think that he's he's lacking like fulfillment even though he has that child because of all the pain he went through before I just mm. feel like there's this huge chunk of his life that he's kind of missing that that he's not whole he doesn't mm. seem whole again and I understand that feeling of kind of the lacking and the and the pain mm. caused by this loss but because of we've done what we've done and I've been able to sort of heal myself through helping other people he just he hasn't got that and I think it's so important mm -hmm. even though you move forward and 
if you're successful in in pregnancies in the future, you've still gone through that. Mm. That's still an experience that you've lived. Those that pain and that trauma is all still there. And I think in order to heal it, you all know almost need to go back through it and like put little, Mm. you know, take some polyfiller with you and fill up little bits and bobs with love and support and and kindness to yourself, really. But like you said, it's you've hit the nail on the head. There, it's trauma. It is trauma and it needs to be dealt with as trauma because PTSD is very real in this. I think it's exceptionally real. Um, And there are processes out there for dealing with trauma. It's just where you associate that this is actually, this is, this is trauma. This is what it is. There's no pretty word for it. It absolutely is. Watching you about to give birth. That must have just all come flooding back. Yeah, yeah, and I think having to go into that hospital as well. We were in the we were in a different part of the the hospital, but it was really profound that I didn't want to go through the double doors into the labour ward. I wanted to be on the birthing suite, and I could just feel anxiety leaping out of him about where how to protect me when I, you know, couldn't probably vocalise everything I needed at that time. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot for him to do, and I like I said, it's taken a long time to process all that and get that into our into our minds I think it could have been dealt with better had we've had the resources that are out there now or are coming Mm, yeah Mm. do you talk about um Dorothy with your other two not yet so Betsy was so Betsy was two two and a half when she Mm -hmm. died um and she doesn't remember it she she's funny one she we've got this um my sister bought me a, a picture with two red, sho- red shoes on it and it said, there's no place like home. And it's a little Aww. thing that we've got in our house. Um, and Betsy will look at that and say, oh, that's for that girl called Dorothy. But oh. she doesn't remember what that's about. And I have every mm. intention of telling them that um, she's at that lovely prepubescent hormonal nine-year-old stage. And I don't really want to break her any more than she already is with the hormones flooding in. Yeah. So, um, But we will. I, I have every intention of talking to them about because I think it comes back to what a lot of people say is I've had three children in my you know I've had three Mm -hmm. children and I want them to to know about that because we have pictures of her and we have a box and um she was she 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 existed so Mm -hmm. you know for me I need to we will talk to them about it but probably when they're a bit older yeah it's difficult knowing when is the right time and I, I think when they're when they're old enough to remember it when it happens obviously mm, you have that, to yeah you can't can't get away from it really but um yeah when they're little enough to have not remembered it's um and it, also by you talking wanna... about it when they're that little I think it has to it, you know you're dragging up your own grief as well and maybe yeah. you're not ready to do that at the time so I think it's just taken take you know you have to be selfish a little bit to make yeah but the decision we made to do it when we did it was that so she didn't remember because mm. I didn't want her to understand that level of grief yeah at such a young age so it's just another prime example of you've got to do you you know there's no yeah. right or wrong way to do it mm, absolutely Aww. oh Emma thank you so much for joining us and speaking so openly and so honestly about you know everything that you've been through and everything that you felt I think it's there's nothing like honesty to make people feel more yeah, comfortable and, um, and less isolated. So, yeah, thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. And where can people find you? Um, so I'm, I work at the Eve Well Fertility Clinic, but I'm on yeah, Instagram mainly, Emma the Embryologist. So um, Fabulous. I'm hoping to find more time to do more posts, but it's just <laughs> oh, yeah. hard. It's we so hear hard. you. <laughs> it's so hard to find the time to do it all. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Keep in touch yeah, and take time. care. All right. Thank you. Lots of love. Bye. 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 Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And please, please, when you have a second, rate us, review us and share us. And let's get this taboo smashed. See you next week. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.